for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organizations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker, and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. Welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And this week, I feel we've got something a little bit different. And I've just described it as being slightly juicy, in fact, this podcast episode. Um, So I'm delighted I've actually got Jim Moore from Hamilton Nash. Now, Hamilton Nash is an HR consultancy that specializes in employee relations, but we're talking about tricky, in particularly tricky people problems, investigations. I've just been chatting to Jim about some of the things that he's got involved in. And I think this is going to be really interesting. A, just from a general point of view, we're in a context or an environment where there's lots of very sensitive, high profile um, types of investigations going on. You kind of think, oh, gosh, if I was the HR person there, how would I feel? Um, But we know that it's something really tricky for us to take on. So Jim's going to also give us some some examples of his experiences, but also some top tips as to how we could investigate something like this. So, Jim, would you like to... Uh, tell me, you said you've been doing this since 2017, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this area. Hi, Lucinda. Thanks for having me. Yes, certainly. So, uh, I mean, I've always been interested in conflict psychology and, and things like that. And so I spent many, many years working with corporate HR departments on internal investigations. I think that's how I started out. Um, and unlike a lot of my sort of HR colleagues and peers, I found that I really enjoyed the employee relations side of things. You know, everyone has a different center of gravity, right? Some people like L&D, some people like org design. Um, but me, I'm a glutton for punishment. I like the, the conflict-related stuff. And in particular, what's fascinating about the, this sort of area, especially when it relates to investigations and mediations, is that people are amazingly diverse there's no formula there's no algorithm um and so you really can get into diagnosing what went on figuring out what uh, the narrative is how did we get to where we are and hopefully trying to find a route to resolution i personally found that really really rewarding so i've actually built my practice all around um, that service so i mean and did you say were you actually hr sort of generalist before and then you found yourself down this route is that how you got yes i mean if you wind the clock back uh, far enough i was i started out funnily enough i started out in software engineering if you go back far enough um and computers of course are very deterministic and there's always answers to things even if they're difficult to find and then i moved into regular people management managing engineering teams and then what got me launched into the HR career was working as as a manager carrying out internal investigations with someone from HR. And that's how I sort of 
through osmosis moved into that as a more formal role and then ended up setting up my own um, organization around exactly that. So, and that's why it's a fascinating topic for us to talk about today, because not only for HR business partners who have to look at investigating these sorts of things, but also for people, you know, managers who might be in a position of having to carry out the investigation themselves. So what would be a kind of typical topic that, that you might get drawn into to investigate? Well, most of the things that I get involved in typically involve very sensitive allegations and or very senior people. I mean, that's the reason why an in-house HR department might come to an external person like yeah. me. They need to have the perception of impartiality and independence. And if you've got allegations uh, or grievances against C-level execs, it's really hard to find someone internally who's not going to be influenced by the status of the individual when it comes to carrying out the investigation. So most of my clients for that, they all tend to be nationals and multinationals who need that sort of assistance. Right. Okay. So, so I, can, I can definitely see that you wouldn't necessarily want to be investigating your own boss um, in tricky circumstances like, like that. So you want to have that neutrality for both parties' sakes, actually, for, for everybody to, to be really neutral. So if you've been, um, I mean, there's, there's been so many things in the press lately in terms of high profile. Oh, I, I wouldn't know where to start, actually, in terms of the options. But if I was to um, ask you, without sort of... Um, betraying any uh, you know, confidentiality, which of course you wouldn't do. If you were to give us a sort of an example of a, a case that you might be pulled in for and what you would do and, and the sort of the challenges that you'd have to take in, into account when you're looking at that. Sure. Um, I, and yes, I'll have to anonymize them, but I can certainly give you the, the sort of the situational context. So some real world examples that I've worked on myself would be um, there's a, you know, a, a global organization that acquired a local engineering company uh, the owner of the local company that was acquired uh, then alleged bullying and harassment against the CEO who was based in the US, uh, believing that he was trying to be pushed out to avoid the the, the US company having to pay for his, uh, you know, his his um, benefits and rewards and all the rest of this stuff. There was another one involving an executive who was accused of pleasuring himself on a video call with a female employee. Uh, that's always an interesting one to sort of bring up with somebody. Um, there's been one more recently uh, involving, the, uh, again, it's a CEO of an acquired organization who was accused of forwarding deeply sensitive commercial information to their private uh, Hotmail account, um, uh, which would present a huge risk to the uh, to the acquiring organization as well. So those sorts of uh serious if you like issues of that seriousness of that nature and so I mean they're all really quite different and I, I mean how do you go about getting the facts it's not like you you are the police so you don't necessarily have a right for example the hotmail account do you have a right to go and um look at the, at the facts as to whether or not things have been emailed it it, it that's a really good question because it, it very much depends on how much evidence that you're presented with. I mean, one of the things you mentioned earlier about some of the you know high profile ones we've heard about in the press. I mean, one of the reasons those have been such high profile stories is because there's been a lack of substantive evidence. You know, there's allegations or what they call in quotes open secrets, but no nothing substantive or specific. So it depends what your starting point is. I can also ask uh, the employer to be you know cooperative. So, for example, in that last case around the emails, we can talk to the IT department and say do you have an audit trail of ingoing and outgoing emails? Can you provide a spreadsheet of you know, what's come in and what's come out? Um, and if they do have that capability, that's helpful. 
The other thing you can do um, is, is use rapport-based interviewing techniques uh, to help put people at ease and encourage them to disclose and come up with the narrative. Ultimately, that's as an investigator, that's what you're trying to do. Encourage a flow of information. The more information you have, the more you have to work with, and therefore the more opportunities you have to identify key facts, statements, points in the narrative, and also potential inconsistencies. So with the investigation that you're you're carrying out, what proportion of it is kind of cold facts, if you like, so, so the IT department, and of course, most companies would have a, a clause that says the IT department's allowed to look at where you send your emails thinking about right. something, aren't they? Um, what proportion of it is kind of facts like that? Um, and what proportion of it is your rapport-based interviewing or what people say, the stories? I would say probably, if I look at it overall, wet finger in the air, 20% is factual or 20% has some material basis. The overwhelming majority is based on narrative because most allegations are he said, she said, or this is how I felt, uh, they're anecdotal. And so you need to rely a lot on rapport-based interviewing to to get to the the facts of the matter. Yeah, and... and, um... I'm, I'm just thinking about the, the, the sensitive one about being various things, people being accused of on Zoom or, or whatever. But how it is going to be he said, she said. And how do you with this rapport based internet? I think perhaps it'd be good for you to explain what that looks like yeah. and how you how you're objective about it, because um, you know, how can you be certain that you're getting the right information? Do you want to talk us through how you do that? Absolutely. So so it's difficult because when people come into um, one of these investigation meetings, they're going to be on edge, no matter how senior they are. In fact, if they're senior, not only will they be slightly on edge because of the circumstances, they'll also perhaps slightly resent even being asked questions at all. You know, people certainly at sea level, they're not accustomed to some random person from inside or outside the organization asking questions. So a lot of it is uh, you set the scene, um, put them at ease, you ask some general ice-breaking questions. And a key point is your use of language. So, for example, if you imagine you open a conversation, the choices are you could say, the purpose of this meeting is to investigate the allegations against you, which, which is a correct and factual statement. Or you could say, my role here is to facilitate an independent and impartial investigation. And what I really want to do today is hear your point of view, hear your perspective. Those two statements are both true, but one of them is going to allow someone to feel more comfortable about talking to yeah. you, right? It's more open and trust you, basically. Yes. Correct. Then once you get that going, there are some other things you can do. So you can ask what I call um, tell, explain, or describe questions, TED questions. And really, I'm just talking about open questions. We all are familiar with this concept. Tell me about the circumstances. Explain how this made you feel, or why do you think this person might have done it that way? Describe what you saw. These things are all encouraging people to share a narrative and get that flow of information going. And certainly when you talk to multiple stakeholders or witnesses, you can build up a picture between their accounts of which points align and which points maybe do not align. And that gives you a clue as to where to go and scratch at things. Um, the other thing is also when you're bringing about somebody pleasuring themselves on a video call. So that's a very, very difficult thing to bring up. Sometimes people will know what they're accused of before they come in to an investigation meeting. Sometimes they won't. So it's and about... they not know in that example. They know. Because in that example, the individual who'd raised the complaint, had they'd raised a complaint against a whole swathe of people for different things, sexual harassment, racial harassment. And one of the, person, uh, one of the people that this individual had cited 
uh, as a witness in support of one of their complaints was also the target of another one of their complaints, which was this this incident on video. Um, so in that case, what I did is I start by asking the individual about, you know, how well do you know the person who's raised the complaint? Um, tell me about your typical interactions with them. Are they entirely work related? Have you got any social contact with them? You know, how do you guys get along? Along, That is all about building up a picture about how close or not they are. Um, and then we can say, you know, oh, unfortunately, there has been an allegation. It's a little bit sensitive. But you, you're basically just gently taking them by the hand to the to the allegation. It's still a shock when they hear it. Um, sometimes you have to pause or give people an opportunity to to compose themselves. And you also have to work them through, you know, you've got the shock, indignation, anger cycle that that, that people go through. And that's quite fascinating as well, because people will react quite differently. Um, interestingly, and this, I mean, I wouldn't use this as the basis of any objective finding, but individuals who uh, are completely innocent tend to react very quickly and actually quite emotionally. So if you're accused of something you haven't done, uh, you would typically retort, no, that's not true. Yeah. It's, I, I deny that completely and maybe even get quite angry. Whereas people who have some degree of culpability, whatever that might be, they usually are a bit more guarded and they think about what would the right answer be. Sometimes they might even try and tease out a bit more context of what you know. You couldn't base a finding on that, but it's a clue. You know, it's yeah. it's one of the it's it's one yeah. of those um, cues. Hell. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So and then um, you'll just take them on the, the journey through their narrative and you'll piece it all together. And then, as I said, once you've got all the different witness statements together, if you have them, you can then look at where they line up and where they uh, where they don't. And a key point here, which we might come to again later, is the fact that we're only looking at this from the balance of probability. So a lot of, for example, the recent Russell Brand thing, a lot of people were commentating about innocent until proven guilty, which, of course, is completely true in a criminal setting. But in workplaces, it's, of course, the civil standard, which is the, the um, balance of probability. So... If you have reasonable grounds on the balance of probability for believing that somebody has done something, even if you don't have conclusive proof, that would still sufficiently justify taking some action. Okay, I didn't realise that. So, so because it's not criminal. So, um, so from an employment law point of view, does that mean that you could um, discipline somebody or or take them down the disciplinary route then with balance of probability evidence in that circumstance? Absolutely. Yes, there's uh, so there's the famous Birchall test. I'm not sure if you if you're familiar with it. The so that it, it's named after case law between British Home Stores and and, and Birchall, um, and there are well there are four tests in the end. They started out with three. Does the employer have a reasonable concern? I think you know it's it's a it's a rational, legitimate, relevant concern. Do they have reasonable grounds for that concern? Have they carried out a reasonable investigation? Reasonable, of course, is the subjective area where this gets tested in law. Yeah. But if you have those three things, um, then you have enough to justify making a decision. The fourth test that was added a little later was, does the sanction, if you decided on a sanction, fall within a reasonable range of responses? So as long as you tick all of those reasonable boxes, then, then yes, you, your um, actions would probably be supported. So... Um, so in terms of then the reasonable, how, mm. again, that's it's a subjective, isn't it? So, so with, with one of these examples that we've just been talking about, how much sort of correlation and investigation do, did you or would you need? How much time do you have to invest? What conclude, how, do you, how do you come up with a conclusion as to which side you're going to land? If it's, or, you know, how often is it very clear, I suppose? 
it's very rare that it's very clear, the, except, I mean, the, the one with the forwarding of confidential emails, I was able to get email logs from that. And and in that case, the individual admitted that they'd done it. They didn't deny that they had done it. They just simply said, but I haven't done anything wrong with the information. I haven't shared it with anybody. And so we ended up having this bizarre conversation where I was trying to get them to understand that simply taking the, the information outside of the company to your in yeah. personal inbox that's a breach in and of itself irrespective of what you did with it yeah. um and they they struggled with it. i tried to explain to them so imagine walking out of mi5 with a folder and then justifying that by saying yeah but i didn't show it to anyone promise you know i didn't breach any confidence it doesn't matter and so going on there but i won't go down that way Yes. So and some of those cases are, I mean, for me, the finding is quite clear. The individual may or may not agree with it, but that's what the process is there for. On the other ones, which are more he said, she said, which typically happen more often than not, um, it comes down to a combination of what supporting evidence is there, what alignment is there. So if multiple people are more or less saying the same thing, how likely is it that these people will have collaborated together to contrive a narrative? In most cases, that's unlikely. Yeah. Um, so that would then increase my um, the weight I would place on their statements because they align. Uh, sometimes you might just have to make a judgment call on whether you believe the individual is being credible or not. But you'd always try as much as possible to try and support it with some kind of finding on the balance of probability here. Oh, it's, it's, so it's, a, it's still really tricky there in, in terms of that. Because I mean, so I suppose you you are having to. So for example, the the, I'm sorry, I've, I've gone down the pleasure himself on the on the Zoom call person. Um, but with that, so so would you therefore take into account other people saying, you know what, he she it was it, 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 a he isn't it? Um, it's you know it's a bit his tendency to be inappropriate at conferences or whatever. Would you, would you kind of you you'd see a pattern of other anecdotal behaviour which would Good. make you swing more? I mean, I'm assuming they didn't admit it. They didn't. And no, and you're right. As a, as a general point, you can look at, uh, you know, is there evidence of a pattern of behaviour here? Have other people made similar allegations? I mean, you're only investigating that particular complaint, but you can look at at history as well. You just have to be careful about how much, you know, uh, weight you put on it because you haven't investigated those those historic claims. So um, and and that's a good example. And there's been other ones. There was an individual uh, who a female worker who accused a male worker of staring at her breasts when she was she was standing over him whilst he was seated working on the computer. She was pointing something out and she said, oh, he's not making eye contact with me. When I look down to see if he's paying attention, he's looking at my at my chest and he's got his hand in his crotch and I don't know what he's doing. Um, it, but on closer examination, you know, in that case, I say, well, how do you know what he was doing? I mean, if are you looking at him or looking at the screen? Bear in mind, if you're standing over him, yeah. all he's got to do is glance to the left and he's, you know, it's like if someone Having has a lanyard. Choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I might be looking at your your ID on a lanyard around your neck. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm not necessarily. So people's eyes move. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be doing something like that. And in that case, these two people had a, a fairly adversarial history. So how likely was it that this person was actually... Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, but with the one you mentioned about the person, so this was a Zoom call. The person pleasuring themselves, accused of pleasuring themselves. Now, you know, his story was, I wasn't pleasuring myself. I just took my glasses. Of course, we can't see it without the video, but you imagine it, right? Someone takes their glasses off and cleans them off camera. So you you've got the sort of the motion of the arms. Um, and he said, I have no idea. 
this was the individual's response. I said, I've no idea where, where she got that from. I said, I was cleaning my glasses. I said, you know, maybe that's what she was referring to. It was a complete mystery to him. And this person um, had worked, they're both of the individuals concerned, had worked closely together for a long time. There was no previous history between them. Everybody else was a standby stand by this. This person had no reputation. It wasn't a work event. There was no alcohol involved because those are often, often yeah. cases where yeah. things do go wrong. So, and also, I mean, in that particular case, just to finish the story off, I'd mentioned this individual had raised complaints against a whole swathe of uh, others. Okay. So, so this... Plus the probability was that uh, that the complainant was closed as opposed that's to... That's right. Uh, so she uh, she had raised fairly thin accusations uh, on race and sex and various other things against a large number of people, including this particular allegation against this particular individual. And most of the others were not well substantiated. Um, there was also, uh, and it's a dotted line, it's not necessarily conclusive, but there were also issues around mental health. Uh, she had a history of being signed off, a history of um sort of work-related stress and other things and so you have to start considering the possibility that there's a cognitive distortion taking place a perception filter um where every act is being interpreted in a more negative way than perhaps it would be someone's looking for a reason why things aren't going their yeah. way so in that case i i you know i found on the balance of probability that this individual had not been pleasuring themselves on a yeah. video call but it is it it is difficult, and you have to show that you've carried out a thorough investigation, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, um, I suppose I don't quite know where to go. So, so I so you would come in, you would uh, you you do you, you do the um the interview. How long would you typically take to um to have the conversations with people? And I imagine you must have to go and then come back again, do you? Because you might have to check facts and yeah. You know, how how long? Would a typical conversation be, and then how long would an overall investigation take? And I realise that might be quite a hard question. Oh, that's all right. I mean, most of the most of the meetings themselves are about an hour. Um, a few might run over if it's particularly complex or sensitive uh, matter, but most of them are more or less uh, one hour. Then what we do is we say, you know, uh, in the course of the conversation, certain things might be mentioned about. Well, I've got emails about this, or I've got text messages. So I'd always invite them. Go and think, you know, you'll get the notes from the meeting anyway. If there's anything else you want to send me, if there's any supporting evidence, documents, images, phone calls, text messages, just email them over to me. Meanwhile, I'll continue talking to any of the other witnesses. And in most moderately complex grievances, there's at least four to six people to speak to. And then I'll put all the pieces together based on what people have told me and what they may have sent me. Uh, and you're right, sometimes I will have to go back and speak to someone a second time if it's just a simple one or two line question i just do it via email if there's a, something a bit more substantial then i would ask them if we could rearrange another meeting and then if you went to you know if someone's been accused of something how do let's say you've done the investigation you've come to the conclusion the reality is that one party is probably not going to be very happy because you know it's unlikely that both parties are going to be happy so how do you resolve this or or take this through to a constructive conclusion that's, you know, that's an excellent point. That really is an excellent point. One of the big problems with grievances and formal complaints is that there's a winner and a loser. You're going to make a decision in favour of someone's narrative. That, unfortunately, never solves the problem. The working relationship remains damaged. Someone always comes away unhappy. Now, depending on the nature of the problem and how much the working relationship has degraded, I do look for opportunities for reconciliation. So that 
there are occasions where I might recommend mediation. Uh, I'm a trained mediator as well. So I, I look for those opportunities where I say, okay, this is a case where I can see that Hanlon's razor has occurred. I, if you're familiar with Hanlon's razor. Please explain. So it's Hanlon's razor, an aphorism, which says, do not ascribe to malice that which can be explained by stupidity or incompetence. Right. That features in so many of the cases I deal with where somebody doesn't understand why someone has said something, done something, made a decision, and they filled that explanatory gap with their own narrative. Now, who do you know that makes up good news, right? <laughs> We're all quite cynical. So individual and manager, manager's done something I don't like, I don't understand, they must have something against me. Oh. That's Hannon's razor. In fact, what's probably happened is the manager's just made a mistake. They've, you mm -hmm. know, they've badly communicated or, or, or something like that. So in those cases, if it hasn't become too toxic, there's a great opportunity to mediate and help each party understand, can you see how it might look to the other person? Can you see how the other person might feel about that? And if you can get both parties to go, yes, yes, okay, I, I think I can see that, you can have a chance of bringing them together. Some of these circumstances involve accusations that are so serious, or the relationship has become so toxic that it's effectively irreconcilable. Um, but in those cases, you're typically looking at a protected conversation or a without prejudice conversation, or if there's certainly if there's no scope to reorganize people away from each other within the business yeah yeah i can understand that so certainly can't come back from a very or you need a fresh start potentially um yeah help with you so yeah like that, that makes sense so you you could aim ideally um immediate because the thing is even if someone if something's not upheld the fact that you've been accused of something so outrageous let's say you know um that it must be quite difficult in certain circumstances that you know the, the example we were talking about earlier yes yeah, very difficult to work with someone. Sorry, I didn't mean to no. talk. It's very difficult to work with someone who's made a grievous allegation against you because you're always going to be having that in the back of your mind in the future. Yes, exactly. it, it, is a, it is a real problem. And the other issue you've got, of course, is by the time someone raises a grievance, a formal complaint, they've become so emotionally invested in the righteousness of their complaint that they struggle to accept anything but vindication as an outcome. Yes. I mean, actually, that's, that's taking me, I'm going to come to the question I was going to ask, I'm not going to ask you now, I'm going to invite that. That's good. Um, one of the things I wondered about there is, so when I've worked with certain businesses, some mm -hmm. cultures are more grievance, uh, more likely to raise grievances, in, in my experience, than, than others. I don't know if there's certain cultures that you would see that there's, uh, people are more like, you know, that from an HR point of view, how can you reduce the chance of that? I'm very sort of, you know, uh, a trigger happy population let's say in terms of trying to cast the blame and stuff I think it's maybe a bit of a blame culture is where people are more likely to do it do you see any sort of patterns in terms of cultures where it's more likely to happen um which I think is slightly different from the example we we're talking about where it does sound like that particular individual maybe had you know had a few problems in terms of how they were perceiving things but sometimes some cultures are more likely to do that and if so any recommendations to HR as to what they can do to I suppose, you know, manage it effectively um, and not over encourage it. That's that's also that's actually a really good question because it, it it's a, it's a very complex topic. There are so many different contributing factors there. You mentioned culture is one of them. So there are certain countries where uh, they're more litigious. Say, you know, they're, they're quick to, quick to complain, quick to yeah. invoke a formal process. There are cultures where um, they're, they're more tactile. You know, sort of some cultures where people are more, you know, touch on the shoulder, touch on the knee, kiss yeah. on both cheeks, that sort of thing. And of course, there are other cultures where that's a complete no-no. 
And in multinational organizations where these cultures mix, that itself can sometimes cause problems. The other issue is, I mean, you'll get differences between, say, the hospitality sector and a technology sector. Both will have plenty of issues, but the nature of the issues might be slightly different. You know, the sort of the sorts of things people complain about or fall out with each other about. Uh, I've worked with some multinationals where an awful lot of the harassment related issues are come out of work events typically you know sort of work hard play hard cultures if you if you I'm thinking sales com I was I was my brain went exactly there I've worked for various companies where you have sales conferences and and um maybe it was the 90s I, I just don't think some of the things that happened <laughs> would be acceptable you know, you know we look back with the but again those sort of things where there's alcohol involved and social events and it's much easier for um great areas and opportunity that's true. Yeah. The, the whole blowing off the steam in whichever format it is. I mean, that happens a lot. One of the IT multinationals I work with, I mean, based their UK arm has oh, somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred people. And every one of their HR business partners has six grievances in flight at any one time. But those won't necessarily be harassment or discrimination ones. It'll be more about compensation, lacks of promotions and things like that. Now, what sometimes people will do is they'll say, I didn't get the compensation or the promotion I wanted. Maybe there's discrimination in there. So they'll kind of try and tie the two together. People like to try and make their case sound as serious as possible. But then you go to other organizations, engineering organizations or hospitality, and people are squabbling over, you know, shift work and, you know, arguments in kitchens and kitchens and, and all the rest of it. Personality clashes rather than, yeah. rather than the type. Uh, I think the, the if I was going to say one key thing about this that would generically apply everywhere is managing the culture at all levels, at all levels is it is essential because if you just have some dry wording in a policy or a handbook, which nobody reads, let's face it, um, or you have some performative slogans on a wall or, or on a company portal, that won't do anything if a blind eye is turned at the management level at all levels. So some of the most extreme cases have involved a gradual escalation of toxicity, toxic culture I'm, I'm referring to here, uh, where it's been tolerated. And because it's been tolerated, it's become a practice, a custom and practice. And then people have to compete with each other. So somebody says a blue joke. Someone has to say something that's even more off color to try and get the next laugh. And before you know it, you've escalated into an environment where outrageous things are being said and done. And nobody realized because nobody put a stop to it to, at the start. So You've got to really keep a close eye on that, I think. Yes, actually, and, and that does um, play into, I've had someone on before talking about advocacy and um, just the general, uh, the, if, if those things, so the, so the cultures also that I've heard, I've heard so in the UK, maybe more public sector, but often there's been trade unions and things where there's been a little bit more of the banter, which then, mm -hmm. for, there's the banter in inverted commas, which uh, is then built exactly as you've just described. And therefore that becomes a, uh, considered to be acceptable way of communication and while we're going there there's therefore people are feeling that there's microaggressions whether it's racist or, or gender-based or whatever it might be um and yes. if any minority people start to feel victimized and probably legitimately so whether or not the attention's there or otherwise and that's where i think these sort of toxic cultures emerge um and it's being really alert to those isn't it and just sort of having it it's a bit like they're sort of it's just zero tolerance for um that sort of discrimination even in terms of humor um, or very much in terms of humour. So those those are sort of tricky things to deal with, but certainly where, where you've got positive cultures where people stamp it out, key figures would go, actually, that's not that's not funny. Um, yeah. And, and it, it becomes uncool to, to be doing that sort of thing. 
Yeah, and and if you don't do something about it, it's amazing the extremes it'll it'll go to. And and, and this is, I think, what surprises people because you know HR parties are the best parties when we share war stories, right? <laughs> uh, and people are amazed at, at what goes on; they can't imagine it happening. So, I mean, there's I can give you a couple of examples of some extremes which are in the public domain. So they're not ones that I worked on, so it's okay to talk about them. So we had. Uh, one very distressing one, which involved Crest Nicholson. This is where an employee was uh, sexually harassed and uh, allegedly raped at a work event. Um, an individual was clearly intoxicated, was started to harass the female worker. A senior manager did not intervene and deal with it. Um, and then we ended up with the, this individual forcing himself on the female worker. So that's, you know, a, a horrible consequence of not doing something about it. Another good example is the case of uh, Tullet and Tokyo Liberty and Weinberger. This is going back a while. So th this is a, a financial environment, a trading floor, very high pressure. We talked about the steam blowing off of steam earlier. And there was a lot of banter, a lot of very strong language, uh, some of it racial pejoratives and things like that. Now, this individual, uh, Weinberger, he, he's Jewish. Um, and uh, there's, again, part of the banter was he was being called Jew boy or Yiddo by his boss, which, of course, was uh, highly prejudicial. Um, but one of the other customs and practices that had evolved through this gradual escalation of banter is if somebody's late for work, they have to wear a fancy dress co costume for the day. And they have a, I don't know if they had a cupboard on site with some different costumes in there. So an Irish person had to wear a, uh, a Pope outfit and things like that. Uh, now this individual, the, the person who raised the complaint, Mr. Weinberger, he's, uh, as I said, he's Jewish. Coincidentally, his grandmother died at Auschwitz. So he's pretty sensitive about this sort of thing. He was late to work for whatever reason. And they thought it'd be a good idea to make him wear a Nazi uniform for the day. Now, to all of us, it's immediately obvious what's wrong with this, right? How could anybody not see what's wrong with this? These are intelligent, ostensibly intelligent, educated people. How could they How could they do this? It's because the toxicity just gradually ratchets up and up and up, and it becomes normalized. And so people start to think that unacceptable things to the rest of us are acceptable. Uh, now, that never actually went to well, court. That's a plain sight thing, isn't it? Yeah, that, that, Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. As an outsider, you can go, that's completely distasteful. But if, and, and why would you even think to do it? But actually, in that environment, you're seeing it happening, you know, then, then that's why people. Yeah. It's it's a, I use it. Yes. Yes. I use it as a case study to show an example of the extremes these situations can get to. Hmm. Quite, it's quite scary. Um, but I can see how it happens as well. This is, you know, in, in this, uh, this environment. So, um, the one final thing I thought just to uh, just maybe to drill into before we perhaps just wrap up and come up with any other top tips you've got for people who have to deal with it. They can't always bring yourself in. Um, sure. If you've got something where it's rumours, uh, the rumour mills out, but you haven't got anything tangible. So there hasn't been anything um, necessarily raised, but you're a bit concerned that there could be something out mm -hmm. there. What would you do in those sort of circumstances? That's a that's a really good question. Also very topical after the Russell Brand affair, because one of the criticisms that the broadcasters faced was the lack of any substantive investigation. The response being, well, there was no specific individual who complained. There's no specific investigation. You can do what's called a fact finding investigation. And you'll be surprised when you start turning rocks over what a skilled investigator can uncover, especially when people start to realize, oh, 
there's an opportunity for me to say something. And in particular, if you very carefully made sure that they feel there's a psychological safe space, that part is crucial. People will be inhibited from sharing anything unless they feel safe to do and uh, that they can do so. So the fact-finding investigation, you also have a duty of care. So if if let's you know, anonymize it, say there is a situation where allegations of inappropriate behavior or harassment of some kind are circulating around somebody, but no one person has come forward. The fact-finding investigation is, is something you can carry out and, and it demonstrates, well, it demonstrates a couple of things. Firstly, if the individual has by chance been guilty of these behaviors, they'll realize that it's not below the radar. This is an opportunity to stop and change my behavior. Uh, it sends a signal to everybody to the point we were just discussing earlier that it's not accepted and yeah. that that will help prevent it from escalating. And with the right, uh, you know, again, a skilled investigator with the right support from HR can create a psychological safe, safe space where people might actually come through and, and start disclosing information. Um, and that way you can show, which will protect your employer brand and your reputation, that you do take it seriously and you have done something about it. The reason people often uh, struggle here and stumble is because they're accused of whitewashing it. Oh, well, you know, there's there's nothing really to go on, so we, di we didn't do anything. Are there any sort of red flags when people might decide to do something like that? I was imagining it might be something if you've got a staff survey and there's a few sort of errant comments or something that it, it, any sort of triggers where you might say actually you should probably do something like that and neutral investigation yes I, it's it's rare that people it's very rare that people will make an overt comment if they're feeling if they're feeling uncomfortable about bringing it forward and that's i think one of the biggest challenges for hr departments is how do i create an environment where yeah. people feel safe to speak up but where it doesn't look like i'm fishing you know um that that is that is quite a challenge and i think again it goes back to that cultural standard of what's acceptable and not acceptable people feel more comfortable speaking out um and also that they're not going to suffer any recrimination from doing so uh, but you can you can, there are other red flags you can look for you can look at how are people interacting up is there avoidance going on is there you know that sort of slightly below the surface conflict things like passive aggressiveness a lack of collaboration lack of communication those sorts of things might give you a clue that there's something to go and look at. And you can also, as you, with, whether it's annual voice of the employee surveys and things like that, you can have questions around how inclusive and comfortable is the environment. So even if, even if people don't give you a specific comment, if you can see the overall sentiment is shifting towards the, ah, this is not a very inclusive, very comfortable environment, that again is a clue that there's something to look at. The problem with that, what's your starting point? Yeah. With some of the higher profile examples, there's usually allegations circling around an individual, even if the allegations are not specific. There's one final point on this is why it's important to do these investigations would be the case of Steve Easterbrook, who was the former CEO of McDonald's. I, you may or may not remember he got fired in 2019, I think it was, because of he was sending sexual text messages to a co-worker. Now, shortly after he was dismissed, McDonald's own HR department ended up under investigation because it came to light that a number of managers had been raising concerns for a while about this individual and his behavior, and they weren't acted upon. And as a result, the, the investigation broadened. So it's really well worth taking these accusations seriously if they arise. And that's that's a really good segue into sort of top tips, really, isn't it, to be seen then. So, so take things seriously, to be seen, to be investigating. It's not going to do any harm. That would be a, a clear thing, point that you'd make. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of that, what other tips would you have for, for our listeners? 
Well, I mean, we've already touched on the importance of the sort of the, the culture and the safe space thing. So we don't need to touch that again. I mean, I think the other thing I would say is that investigating is a skilled job. And there's a, there's a lot of experience required to get the best out of investigation. And a lot of investigations that are done internally, often with managers, say, from a different line of business, the manager is thrown into it more or less untrained in most cases. So what I would prob probably recommend is Take some time to train your pool of investigators, whoever they are. Make sure they understand how to do rapport-based interviewing, how to get the best out of uh, the witnesses they speak to, how to properly evaluate evidence, and to be thorough. We had the um, uh, there was that the, the postal service one where where the employee won two million in the end because they were dismissed for poor performance, and the investigator never challenged the manager's account of poor performance. The manager had in fact contrived. A whole narrative about poor, poor performance is recrimination for whistleblowing on the part of the employee, because the investigator just took it on face value. It's a manager. I'm going to accept what they say. And uh, obviously that stumbled at the tribunal. So, yeah, I think training the investigators is really, really important. Yeah. And I guess get, getting that expert support and neutrality outside is, is if, if you're ever concerned about that, is that is often quite a useful thing to do, having something really someone neutral to almost support you because we've all got our own biases haven't we as well so it's it's um it's almost protecting yourself if we do that yes absolutely i know yeah that's a great point I and mean, we won't have the time to get into it now but bias is a huge a, a yeah. huge issue that's why you have to think very carefully about is the investigator sufficiently impartial and independent or perceived to be to for their decision to have a chance of not being appealed yes yes exactly because it's expensive at <laughs> the very least say nothing if you want to do the right thing you do the right thing but you don't want to get it wrong but Jim, I found that a really, really interesting. I would say I'm sure, my curiosity, I could have asked um, asked you further questions. But um, in the interest of time, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the HR Uprising podcast. I'll obviously put your details um, in the show notes. But if people want to connect with you, do you want to just tell them how they can get in contact if they want to connect with you? Yeah, sure. I mean, you can find uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, you, if you search for Jim Moore, Hamilton Nash, you'll find plenty of links to me, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Great stuff. And as I say, we'll put them on the show notes. So thank you so much, Jim. I found that really interesting. And, and definitely, I think it was classified as a juicy podcast, which is quite <laughs> nice at the start of the start Great of fun. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate My pleasure. it. Thank you for joining. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.